Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Well, as president of the United Christian Movement, we invited Reverend King to come here in August of 1958. At that time, it was very difficult for black people to register to vote. So he agreed to come to speak and to lend of his spirit to the correct default of the correct segregation. At that time, blacks were required to, if they were permitted to vote, to give their name, age, and everything and figure it out in days, months, and years. And then if he was smart enough to do that, to ask a question like to interpret the Constitution. How many bubbles in the bottle? How high is up? Anything that's ridiculous to keep you from registered to vote if you went that far. So Reverend King agreed to come to address the problem of voter registration and to have a workshop. King and I were good friends. We, he was president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and I was president of the United Christian Movement. And also I was a, both vice president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and served on his board. Reverend Stewart, who was the pastor of Galilee Baptist Church at that time, agreed to let us use the church for this purpose. People came out more than I expected at that time because it was very critical. The segregations were in charge police were not friendly, but the people came. And I think they heard one of the earliest speeches by Dr. King that's ever recorded. I think this is that particular speech. It must have been about five or 600 people. And the cars that were parked outside were all given tickets. Some of the windshields were broken. Some of them had sand in the, in the gas tank and many negative things to discourage you from actually being there. So these people had no fear. They wanted to be free. They wanted to be able to register to vote, to be a citizen of this country. This, to me, is his greatest speech because you can hear the ministers and people in their background responding. Can't give you a graphic picture of it, but a word picture, if you listen to it, gives you just how the people felt that. You felt that they wanted to be free, that they enjoyed it. They knew the threats, they knew the harm, they knew the danger, but it just didn't matter to them. Freedom was more important than anything else in their lives. I think King just filled everything he had inside. He gave part of the present, the past, and the future in this speech. I think very clearly, it's an emotional speech. He gives what he feels, he's uninhibited, the people loved him, and you could just feel the spirit of God throughout the whole speech. You could just feel his presence. King gave a beautiful picture of, of, of everything. I think it's a, a cry, a plea, a promise for freedom. The distinguished Fulfit Associates, my Christian friends. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this evening and to be a part of this occasion. I have long wanted to come to Shreveport and I have long admired the courageous work that is being done here. And so to be here and see it firsthand and to meet the citizens of this community is a great privilege and a great opportunity for me. I want to commend the leaders of this community, the leaders of your Christian association here, for 
the great work that has already been done and the great work that will be done in the future. I want to commend these ministers. Now, I've had the good fortune of working with many of your ministers in our Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and it is a great honor and a great privilege to work with them and to see that dedication and that devotion to the cause of freedom. Then I've had the good fortune of working with Dr. Simpkins, also in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I haven't lived very long, but uh, in the few years that I have lived, I've met quite a few people. But I can say to you very sincerely that Dr. Simpkins is one of the most dedicated and devoted persons that I know in this whole area of freedom and civil rights. Amen. Then I want to say this, too. I, I, I said because I think it needs to be said, uh, Dr. Simpkins is a unique person in the sense that uh, he doesn't have to do what he does. He's relatively comfortable, I imagine. He's a professional man, and uh, some of our professional people get in comfortable positions, and they forget about the matter. But I've seen him time and time again leave his office, leave a day's work when he could make a good sum of money close his office to come to meetings in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and help men and women solve problems that they're facing every day. And I think this is a commendable thing, something that you should be proud of, and having a man like that in your community. And again, I want to say, God be praised for your ministry. I can remember several months ago when you started out in the bus struggle. And I can remember the ministers going to the buses. I don't know uh, how it happened, but last night I just picked up an old magazine. I opened that magazine and saw the picture of a bus. And uh, as I looked at that bus, I saw the face of my good friend and host, Reverend Simmons, sitting up on that bus on the front seat. And I said, this is, this is courage, and this is what it will take in this struggle. And I'm also grateful to see people in other surrounding communities and to be in their presence, people who came today for the workshop on registration and voting. This is one of the most important things that we can do. In this hour, I am convinced that one of the most important steps that the Negro can take is that short walk to the voting booth. And in such workshops and institutes, we are able to get some of the techniques over and try to organize the communities, getting them ready for this big job ahead. And so we hope to continue in that, and I hope you will give this organization, your support, your local organization here and other organizations through the state. Just this afternoon, the groups wanted to think of coming together a little more in the various parishes, and Brother Coleman was elected chairman of that group, a courageous man himself, a heroic man. And this is going to make for a great deal of united action in this area. And I hope you will give them your wholehearted support and that you will support us in our whole Southwide struggle in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Now, I'm not going to talk uh, specifically this evening in the area of registration and voting. I want to talk about some of our general problems and touch on registration and voting here and there. I want to use as a subject 
what Negroes can learn from history. What Negroes can learn from history. One of the most obvious facts of human existence is the fact that no individual or no group is isolated or detached. Every individual is a part of a continuing process. And one of the unique things about man is that he can comprehend the process. Man has a history. And because of that, he can meditate on the past and project his vision to the uncertainties of the future. This is man's uniqueness, that, that he can look back and learn and think about the past, and that he can look forward and meditate on the future. I imagine this is why Shakespeare could have Hamlet say, what a piece of work is man. How noble in faculty, how infinite in reason. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In apprehension, how like a god. In action, how like an angel. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. This is man. You can't say that about animals. You can't say that about dogs and cats and monkeys and horses. They, they have no sense of history. They, you, you will never see a group of animals thinking about the past and looking into the future, worrying about its uncertainties. But man is unique. Man is made in the image of God, so he has a history. And so he can reach back and study the facts of the past and use them to charter a meaningful course for the future. Yes. And so tonight I want to discuss with you some of the lessons, some of the things that, that we can learn if we will only look back Think about history. Some of the things that we can learn from the long unfolding processes of the centuries. Something that we can learn from man's long struggle to adjust himself to his environment. Something that we can learn from man's long struggle to adjust himself to the will of the Almighty God. Lessons that we can learn from history. And I think if we can learn some of these lessons, they will serve as a guide for us in the future, and they can help us understand the present. Now, I think the first thing that we as Negroes must learn from history is this. That privileged groups never give up their privileges without strong resistance. This is a part of the long story of history. Look back to the distant days of Egypt at its height and look at the children of Israel trying to get out of the bondage of slavery. And you see a lesson there, that privileged groups have hardened hearts. They have to be plagued a great deal before they give up their privilege. 
even when the Red Sea opened. They will even venture to go out there and bring oppressed people back under the yoke of oppression. Privileged groups never give up their privileges without strong resistance. And if we understand this lesson of history, we will understand what is happening all over the South today. That's right. The white man is not defending what he thinks is morally right. He is defending what he believes is economically profitable. What the white South is fighting for today is to maintain its privileges. There was a time that some sincere men, I imagine, dreamed a dream back in 1896, and they had the dream in their minds that some such strange phenomenon as separate but equal could be a reality. And so they rendered a decision, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. And after 1896, the years unfolded, and, and everything was centered toward the circuit, but never was there a real move toward the east. <laughs> what happened was that man failed to see that separate can never be equal because the fact of separate itself came into being to make things unequal. And the system of segregation came into being to maintain the privileges of the majority group. This is the purpose of segregation. The purpose of segregation is that the segregator will remain on top and the segregated will remain on the bottom. That's the purpose of it. That's why it came into being. All of the resistance that we find today in the South is an attempt to maintain a privileged position. History teaches us that, and the strange thing is that the individuals who seek to maintain this privileged position never realize that God made this world in a certain way. He made it in a certain interrelatedness, which means that whatever affects one individual directly affects all indirectly. Which means, as Booker Washington discovered years ago, that you can't keep a man down in the valley without staying down there yourself. Because this world is coherent and we are made to live together. That is an interrelatedness in reality. God made it that way. So when you hurt me, you hurt yourself. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. So long as that is poverty in the world, I can never be rich even if I have a billion dollars. So long as diseases are rampant and hundreds and thousands and millions of people do not expect to live more than 28 or 30 years, I can never be totally healthy, even if I just got a checkup in Mayo Clinic. John Dunn caught it years ago, and he could cry out, No man is an island in time itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Then he could conclude by saying, Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. 
And the oppressor never sees this, and he goes his merry way trying to maintain his privileged position, never realizing that in doing that he hurts himself. Just as he hurts us. That's one of the lessons of history. That is another lesson that history teaches. We can learn from it is this. Freedom is never gained without a determined struggle coupled with a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. In this naughty world, men got mixed up, and theologians say they failed. They call it the fall of man, and they talk about original sin. Now, I'm not uh, out to go into any theological doctrines here, but, but the doctrine of original sin reminds us that, that men do have a little evil in them, and that they can be bad, and so this world is a little naughty. And because of that, oppressors never come up to the oppressed people and say, now, uh, I thought about this thing, and I'm going to give you your freedom now. They don't do it voluntarily. Maybe they would have done it voluntarily in that stage that we sometimes think of when man lives completely by the will of God, but he's a fallen creature now. And so it just doesn't happen that way. It only comes through the persistent efforts and the hard work of dedicated individuals. You know, there are approximately 2 billion, 500 million people in this world. The vast majority of them are colored people, just like you and me. They're colored people. About 1 billion, 600 million of them live on two continents, Asia and Africa. 600 million in China. 400 million in India and Pakistan. 200 million in Africa. 100 million... In Indonesia, more than 86 million in Japan. For years, most of these people have been dominated politically, exploited economically, segregated and humiliated by some foreign power. And most of them have gained independence now. About a billion, 300 million of these billion, 600 million people have their freedom and their independence today. Never forget that it wasn't given to them on a silver platter. It came through their struggles. It came through their persistent work. It came through their constant agitation. It wasn't handed out. We can learn something from that. I remember very vividly about a year ago, having one of the great experiences of my life. Mrs. King and I had journeyed over to Africa to what was in the Gold Coast for the independence celebration. And I never will forget that night, about midnight, when about 100,000 people stood out in an open field in front of the House of Parliament. And at that moment, we watched an old flag come down. It was the Union Jack flag, and we watched a new flag going up. It was the flag of the new nation of God. A little black man mounted a platform by the name of Kwame Nkrumah. And he looked out across that vast crowd of people and said, I declare to you, that our nation is now independent and a free nation. When he declared that, I looked out. My ears were open and I could hear black boys and black girls, old men and old women crying, freedom, freedom, 
freedom. At that moment, tears began to flow from my eyes. To my right was standing my wife and Ralph Bunch, and to my left was standing Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, and as I looked around at them, I saw tears rolling from their eyes. This was a great moment. Then I looked over to Adam Powell and said, Adam, this means something. This represents something. And we must never forget something that we must take home. It should remind us that freedom is a costly thing, and it never comes without suffering and sacrifice. We must never forget that little black man who mounted that platform had on a little cap. It was a cap that he had worn for months and months while in prison. He went to jail for that freedom. We must never forget that hundreds of people spilled their blood on the shores of this nation. They are free today. They are free today. They suffered and sacrificed for that freedom. Went to jail for it and some of them died for it. Nehru is now a great man in this world, leading the second most populous nation in the world. Nehru spent years of his life in British jails. Mahatma Gandhi spent years of his life in British jails. We must never forget this lesson of history. Now, I'm afraid that some of us are forgetting this. We, we feel that it is just going to roll in on the wheels of inevitability, and so we sit down by the wayside and do nothing. It doesn't happen that way. Years ago, a man lived in England by the name of Darwin, and he developed what is known as the theory of evolution. But Darwin's theory applied only to the biological realm, and he conceived the man biologically as moving up from some type of animal existence now to his present state of personality. But there was another man who lived in England who had read the works of Darwin, and he tried to apply this concept to the whole of society. And so men came to believe that progress was inevitable. Somehow men felt that things are just evolving to a better state, and so you don't have to do anything. They're just going to do it anyway. But history has proven that that just isn't true. Human progress is never inevitable. It only comes through the tireless work and persistent efforts of dedicated individuals. It's not a process of sitting down waiting. You got to do something about it. You remember when the children of Israel got out of Egypt and they got out in the wilderness and sent some spies over in the promised land to see how it looked over there and what the conditions were. Spies came back and reported and they said, there are giants in the land. And it's going to be hard to get in there because giants are in the land. Then you remember Caleb and Joshua went over and they came back with what was the minority report. They said, yes, there are giants in the land, but in spite of that, we feel that we can possess the land. Now, as a result of this, three groups emerged, three groups developed that Moses had to deal with. After they discovered that it was going to be hard, uh, that there were giants in the land, three groups developed that Moses had to deal with. One group wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They preferred the flesh pots of Egypt to the challenges of the promised land. Now there are some people today who, uh, who, who, who have so conditioned themselves to the system of segregation and discrimination that they want to stay down in the Egypt of segregation. This has happened to people. This has happened to 
When I was living in Atlanta years ago, I remember going in the area, and there was a man who used to play his guitar, and he would play it over and over again. And one day I stopped, and I heard him saying something. He was singing, and I discovered what he was saying that day. He was singing, been down so long that down don't bother me. <laughs> Now, you have some people like that. You have some people just like that. They, they have come to the point of freedom of exhaustion. And so they, they, they would rather stay in Egypt. They've conditioned themselves to the system. I don't then you had another group to develop. There they were the people who didn't want to go back to Egypt. They hated Egypt. They had suffered in Egypt, and they knew the disadvantages of Egypt. But they did not want to go through the sacrifices involved in getting to the promised land. And so they just wanted to hang around out in the wilderness. I believe Moses was talking to this group when he said, we've been in this mountain long enough. Because they wanted to hang around in the mountain, around out in the wilderness. They wanted freedom, but they didn't want to go through the sacrifices involved in gaining freedom. They wanted the fruits of freedom. But they didn't want to do the necessary work involved in gaining. And now there are some people like that today. People like that today. They want it. They hate. They hate Egypt. The Egypt of segregation and discrimination. They hate it. But uh, they don't want to go through the sacrifices involved. These are the people who, who are afraid, you see, that they will lose a job. Amen. These are the people who who, who have the philosophy that, that I've got to live and I've got to make a living, and in order to do that, I, I, I must not get too involved. These are the people that have certain positions. And because of the security of their positions, they sacrifice the security of their freedom. They want freedom, but they, they don't want to suffer a little for it. They don't want to sacrifice for it. These are the people who want to, to remain at one spot. They want it to be worked out by somebody else. And when it's worked out, then they'll go on and jump over and enjoy it like that. They want it. Then Moses confronted another group. Yes, Thank God, this is the beauty of history. He confronted another group. It was probably a small group. They looked over. They faced the fact that there were giants in the land, but they believed with Caleb and Joshua that they could possess the land. They were determined to go. They knew that they had difficulties ahead. They knew that although they had conquered Egypt, there were the Midianites and the Moabites and the Philistines and the Hittites ahead. But in spite of the prodigious hilltops of evil and the gigantic mountains of opposition, they believed they could go to the promised land. They moved on. They moved on with faith in God and with the strength of their conviction. Today, who will be in that group? Who will be in that group today? I'm not going to fool you, my friends. There are giants in this land that we are seeking. Giants of vested interests. Giants of irrational emotionalism. Giants of political dynasties that have been set up across the years. They are there. But who today will believe that we can possess the land? This will be the group that will change history. Amen. This will be that creative minority. Who will be in that group? Amen. 
until that group emerges and until that group stands there, the Negro will not achieve his freedom in America. We've got to get there and stand there and be determined to keep moving. Freedom is never achieved without a determined struggle and a willingness to suffer and to sacrifice. I see right here in your city you are still having bus difficulties. Now, don't you think buses are going to get integrated in Shreveport, Louisiana, voluntarily, and that nobody's going to have to suffer and sacrifice here? You've got to begin now devising a method whereby you will stand before this community and say, come what may, these buses will be integrated. And we are going to suffer if necessary, we are going to sacrifice if necessary, but we are going to stand here until they're integrated. Because we know this is the will of the Almighty God. There's such a thing as moral and righteous pressure. Things are done by people who can apply that adequately, moral and righteous pressure. That's why we talk so much about the ballot now. That's why we talk about it, because we know that there is power in the ballot. The thing that disturbs me about Little Rock, Arkansas, along with other things, the fact that Governor Forbes was elected uh, is quite tragic, but there's something else even more tragic. He was elected by a little more than 200,000 votes. Pretty near 300,000 votes. Did you know that there are more than 200,000 eligible Negro voters in the state of Arkansas? If these people had gone to the polls, if these people had been registered, with the other people who would have voted against Governor Fathers, he wouldn't have been reelected. That's right. That's right. That's right. So that was a failure to apply what we have in our hands, and that is the We've got to sacrifice enough to walk down and get registered and then go to the polls after we do. We got to go in our money and give some uh, in our pockets and give some money for the cause. Amen. You see, this is that creative minority that I'm trying to talk about that will say somehow that we are going on into the promised land. We're willing to sacrifice anything. We're willing to suffer because we must possess the land. Who's in that group tonight? And I want you to ask yourself the question before you leave here, which of the three groups are you fitting in? Are you in that group willing to suffer and sacrifice and say to yourself that I must be free because God himself made me to be free? Who this evening can somehow say to his white brother, I'm not trying to tear up the nation, I just want to be free. I'm not trying to take possession of everything in this nation. I just want to be free. I'm not out to become your brother-in-law mainly. I just want to be your brother. I want to be free. I'm not out to go into this great nation of ours and set it back in terms of its moral achievements. I just want to be free. Who can go out this evening and say, paraphrasing the words of Shakespeare's Othello, who steals my purse, steals trash, to something, nothing, t'was mine, tis his, has been the slave of thousands. But he who filches from me my freedom Robs me of that which not enriches him, but makes me poor indeed. I just want to be free. And this evening can go out and cry to the nation, I just want to be free. 
then somebody will come to the point and say, I'll do anything to be free. May mean going to jail, but I'll go to jail to be free. May be losing my job, but I'll lose my job to be free. May mean physical death, but a physical death is the price that I must pay to free my children from a permanent life of psychological death. Then give me death, for I want to be free. Who this evening can go out and cry to the nation, I want to be free. Then come to the point that you can cry out with your forefathers of old. Before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my home and be saved. I just want to be free. History teaches us a lesson. A lesson that freedom never comes without sacrifice and suffering and struggle. There's another lesson that we can learn from history, and I don't want to be too long. History teaches us that freedom can be achieved without violence. We have some lessons in history there that reveal to us that we don't have to get our guns. So take courage now. Come to see that you don't have to stack your house with ammunition. Come to see that you don't have to try to fill up some deposit of bombs now. You don't have to do it that way. History reveals that you can gain your freedom and you don't ever have to pick up a gun again. History reveals that all of us have something that's powerful. More powerful than any gun that has been created. You may be poor. May not have any money. You may be illiterate. You may not know the difference between you does and you don't. You may not, you may not have ever heard of Plato or Aristotle. Never heard of Einstein's theory of relativity? You may not have all of the cultural attainments of this nation, but you have a soul. History says if you will somehow decide that you are going to use the whole force of your soul, you can shake empires from the because you have a soul. Papa Gandhi, a little brown man, looked at the people of India. Said to him, you may be illiterate. The British Empire has exploited you so much that 350 million of you make less than $50 a year. You don't have any money. But you got a soul. You will use the force of your soul. I will begin to walk with you and talk with you. We can shake the British Empire to it. That little brown man galvanized the whole of India. I remember reading of that day when he started his people. And they were being exploited and they were being charged tax on salt. And he told them that we were going to march down to the salt sea. Against the orders of the British Empire, we're going to just reach down in that sea and get all the salt we want. Amen. And I want you to march with me. And if they shoot you, don't shoot back. Amen. Yeah. If they kick you, let them kick you down. And you get up if you can and keep walking. And if they kill you, remember that you have a soul. And they can't kill that because Amen. it's immortal. So don't worry even if they kill your physical body. Gandhi started with them that day. He just started walking with a few people, and they walked on, and other people joined, and other people joined. And when they got down to that sea, hundreds and thousands of people stood there. And that day, I imagine that the boys back in London at number 10 down the street said to themselves, that's all, boys, it's all over. It's all over now. It's all over. 
there was the power of the soul. This is what we have. This is what we have. Let us come to the point that we can say to ourselves that we will meet your physical force with soul force. Get your guns and keep shooting. Bomb our homes and our churches and slap our children. And we're going to still love you. We're going to wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we're going to win our freedom. But not only will we win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. We will not only achieve our freedom, but we will win the hearts and souls of those who have deprived us of our freedom. This is why I believe so firmly in the way of love and nonviolence in our struggle. We're not going to win this battle hating white folks. Hate doesn't help the hater and it doesn't help the person who is hating. There's something about hate that hurts the hater. Somebody must have the power to transform through love. You just hate somebody. And you are as uncomfortable and as frustrated as the person you hate. Oh, hate, there's something about hate that keeps you from walking straight. Something about hate that keeps you from standing up straight. When you hate, you can't see right. When you hate, you lose your power of objectivity. If you hate somebody, you, you can't see that person. When you hate strong enough, the ugly becomes beautiful and the beautiful becomes ugly. A good speech becomes a bad speech and a bad speech becomes a good speech. When you hate strong enough, you will look at a good deed of a person and call it a bad deed. Hate causes you to put the wrong price tag on everything. When you hate strong enough, hairpins begin to sell for a thousand dollars and diamond rings for five cents because you got the wrong price tag on things. There's something about hate. There's something about hate that does something to the hater. And so our way must be a way of love. We will stand up right here in this south land say to our white brothers, we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. Do to us what you want to, and we're going to still love you, but we're going to disobey these unjust laws. And when you put us in jail, we're going to still love you. Whatever you do to us, we're going to still love you. Do to us what you will, and we're going to still love you. Have we come to that point yet? That we can use the power of our soul to transform the Lord. Now somebody saying to me, Reverend, what in the world do you mean when you say love your enemies? And love those people who are oppressing you. Do you mean to say you 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 can love those people with an affectionate love? No, I don't mean that. No. I can't have an, an affectionate feeling for people who who bomb my home. Trying to kill my wife and my baby, and I can't love them with this affectionate love, a sentimental love, certainly not. You know, the Greek language has three words for love, and it's a very interesting thing how it applies our situation. The Greek language has a word called eros, and eros is a sort of aesthetic love. Uh, Plato talks about it a great deal in his dialogues, the yearning of the soul for the realm of the dark. It has come thus to be a sort of romantic love, uh, a sort of uh, love that we have in our romantic relations. And so we all know about that kind of love. We all know about it. We, we have all been a part of Eros. I guess uh, Edgar Allan Poe was talking about Eros when he talked about his beautiful Annabelle Lee with a love surrounded by the halo of the sun. Uh, yeah. I mean, Shakespeare was thinking about Eros in a sense when he said, Love is not love which alters, 
when its alteration finds a bends with the remover to remove. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is a star to every wandering bark. You know, I can remember that because I used to quote it to my wife when we were quoting it. <laughs> and the Greek language talks about Thalia, which is a, another love, another level of love. This is a sort of personal uh, affection. It's a sort of reciprocal love. It's an affection between personal friends. And on this level, you love because you are loved. You love people that you like. Yeah. People that you have things in common with. You go have dinner with them. You talk with them on the telephone. They are likable people, and you have things in common. And they are your personal friends. And this is a powerful love. Then the Greek language comes out with another word. It calls it agape. Agape is more than eros, it's more than philia. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would tell us that it is the love of God working in the lives of men. When you rise to love on this level, you love men not because you like them, but you love them because God loves them. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. And I'm glad he didn't say, like your enemies. He didn't say, like your enemies. Because like is a sentimental, affectionate sort of thing. But love is greater than like. I find it pretty difficult to like uh, all of these southern senators and congressmen up in Washington who are doing everything that they possibly can to defeat the goals of the Negro. I don't like their ideas. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like what they're trying to do to my people. I don't like them, but Jesus says love them. Amen. Love is greater than life. When you rise to the true level of love, you can love the person who does the evil deed by hating the deed that the person does. This is another level, you see. You come to the point that you hate deeds and you you hate uh, systems, but you don't hate persons. This is what we must have at this time. I can hear Jesus speaking to us in this day and in this period saying once more, I know what you're going through. I know how you're being treated. I know how you're being kicked around. I know all the violence that you are facing. I know the brutality that you're facing. And I know you've heard men say of old that you should love those people that love you and treat you all right and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully you. And only through this method can you matriculate into the university of eternal life. Only by loving. And this is the way history reveals to us that we can achieve our freedom. We can achieve justice without violence. I come now to a final point. A final lesson that history teaches us. It is this, that in the struggle for freedom and truth and righteousness, you are never alone, but God works with you. History reminds us that truth and justice and love and Freedom are ultimately triumphant. And that evil must ultimately go down. History teaches us that. History teaches us that the children of Israel may be taken away in an Egyptian captivity. And there for years exploited and dominated and trampled over, but one day the Red Sea opens. All right. All right. History teaches us that Hitler may rise on the throne. Yes. He may boast of the fact that he is going to rule the world. 
Yes. He may even kill five million Jews, but one day that same Hitler is crushed. Yes, sir. And the very power of his office tumbled. Yes. History teaches us that good Friday may occupy the throne for a day. But ultimately, it must give way to the triumphant beat of the drums of Easter. History teaches us that Caesar will occupy the palace for a while and Christ a cross. But one day, that same Christ will rise up and spit history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. History teaches us
I answered the call. Things went smoothly for several weeks, several days. But then about the middle of January, threatening calls began to come into the house and threatening letters. They started coming almost 30 and 40 a day, and I would try to ignore them. I would go on and try to be strong, but it continued and it continued. I soon discovered myself faltering a little and soon discovered that I was getting a little afraid. Morning after morning, I would get up and look across the breakfast table and see a devoted wife and a charming little daughter, and I started thinking of the fact that any moment I could be taken away from them or they could be taken away from me. Something could happen because these threats might be true. Yes, sir. And I started feeling myself weak and faltering along the way, and I started fearing a little bit. Then I remember very vividly one night very late. It was about midnight. I was in bed and the phone rang and I picked up the phone and on the other end I heard this voice and 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 this person began to say so many terrible things and what was going to be done and and this was it that they were getting ready now to get rid of me. And for some reason that voice did something to me. It it it, it sort of took my nerves and and it got me to faltering even more. And it seemed that all of the fears and all of the weak moments came to me at this one time. And they all fell down on me. Yeah. I tried to go to sleep and I couldn't go to sleep. And I got up and I started walking. And I remember I went back in the kitchen. My wife was asleep. And there on that table I started thinking and I started for making a little ball and a little coffee, and I thought that would give me a little relief. Yeah. But I was still deep in fear. And I started thinking about a lot of things. I started thinking about the problem of evil, and I started thinking about it in its philosophical and theological connotations and the explanations that theologians and philosophers have given for evil, and I was raising the question, why are people like this? Yeah. Then I came to see that I couldn't answer the question like this. Then I thought about the fact that Mama and Dad were just 175 miles in Atlanta, but that was too far now. I used to be at the point that I could call on them, but uh, couldn't do that now. No. They were 175 miles away, and, and I had to face this thing. Yes. And I came to see at that moment that I had come to the end of the road and all of my particular powers had gone. Yes, sir. And I never will forget it. I bowed down on the side of that table yes, and began to talk to the Lord about it. Yes, sir. I began to develop a religious experience for myself that I never had before. Lord, I'm here trying to lead the people. I feel myself getting weak. I'm doing it because I think it's right and I think the cause is right. But now I'm in fear and if if I I can't go before the people like this because if I go before them in fear, they themselves will fall down. I've got to be strong when I go before them. I've tried everything. I've turned to all explanations. And now I've come to see that I can't solve this problem by myself. I turn everything over to you. I leave it with you. It seems that at that moment something spoke to me within, not a literal voice, but, but something began to speak within saying, in substance, stand up for truth. Yeah. Stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, and, and lo, I will be with you, yeah. even until the end of the world. Three nights later, I was in a mass meeting at the First Baptist Church. 
people began to run up and down the aisles delivering messages, and I noticed that nobody was coming to me. No. Oh, yeah. Pretty soon, something said to me, is something wrong, and it affects you. And I started asking them now, what's wrong? What, what is this? Yes. I called Reverend Say and Reverend Abernathy, one or two other my close associates, and I said, I know it's something wrong, and you're trying to hide it from me, but whatever it is, let me know. That's right. I'm prepared for it. They looked over to me and said reluctantly, your home has just been bombed. I said, uh, how is Coretta, the baby, have you heard yet? Uh, did you get any information on that? They said, no, we don't have that yet, but we're trying to find out now. Yeah. When I heard the words, I didn't get upset. I didn't go back and tell the people to go pick up that gun. No. I was just as calm as I'd ever been in my life. Why? Because three nights before, something had happened. A power greater than any power in this universe had said to me in substance that you are not in this struggle alone. And I can say to you sincerely, my friends, ever since that day, I have been able to walk the streets of Montgomery with my feet solid to the ground and my head straight to the air, fearing no man, because I felt the power of Almighty God. He's still saying that to us days ahead, the days ahead of Pentecost. We're going to need something to keep us going. We're going to need some power to keep us going. And I say to you, go out with the faith that God is with us. We have cosmic companionship in this struggle. If we will learn these four lessons from history, hundred years from now, when historians write of the history of America, they will have to say there lived a great people. A black people. People with fleecy locks and black complexion. But a people who injected new meaning into the veins of our civilization. Historians will have to say, this world is better because those black people live. And if we will but do this, few years from now, a few decades from now, men will be able to come together, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, join in the singing of a new song, free at last, free at last, red God Almighty, we are free at last. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.